And welcome to this week's episode of Gray Matter with Michael Krasny. Our guest for this episode is artist, feminist, and filmmaker Tiffany Schlain. Described by public radios on being as an internet pioneer and Newsweek as one of the women shaping the 21st century, she is the founder of the Webby Awards and the International Academy of Digital Arts and Sciences, as well as being the author of 26.6, giving up screens one day a week to get more time, creativity, and connection, and another book called Brain Power from Neurons to Networks. A filmmaking graduate of UC Berkeley, she has won many awards for her 30 films, including Best Documentary for The Tribe, a film about Judaism and how much more current can we be, Barbie, and welcome Tiffany Schlain. It is so good to be back speaking with you. And good to be back with you. We have known each other for a number of years and have been in conversation under many different circumstances. And we have much to cover and discuss today, uh, not only feminism, which uh, Tiffany has been very involved in, and AI, which she's also been very involved in, but also neuroscience and uh, what it means to have a day of rest from screens and computers, which she has been a major advocate of. Uh, but I thought we'd start with Barbie Mania, and she did a film about 20 years ago, as I said, which was at Sundance in 2006, got a global audience, and this has always been a mystery to me. Actually, it's been regularly shown on U.S. naval ships. It's called The Tribe, and it's about Barbie, and also, as the title suggests, about Judaism and the connection between Barbie and Judaism. I'll just say one thing by way of introduction. If you've seen the movie Barbie, Ruth Handler was indeed the inventor of Barbie. She was also a leading force in Mattel, and she was played by Rhea Perlman in the movie. This movie has been one of 53 movies to make a billion dollars or to cross over making a billion dollars, and that only includes nine movies with female protagonists, three of which were animated movies. So I thought it'd be interesting to get, first of all, Tiffany's take on the movie. Yeah, it's been, it was it was a really interesting summer to see, first of all, a happening happen around both Barbie and Oppenheimer, which are both great movies. And really, it's been a long time since people have gone out to the theaters on the same weekend and started kind of a global conversation about, about both feminism through the Barbie movie and, you know, atomic bombs with Oppenheimer. So I I love how much attention and how many conversations and op-eds and articles it has brought up. And, you know, obviously it's a subject I thought about a lot, the Barbie subject. Uh, my husband, Ken Goldberg, and I co-wrote this film called The Tribe, which is an unorthodox, unauthorized history of the Barbie doll and the Jewish people uh, in around 15 minutes. And we premiered it, um, yeah, I think it was 18 years ago. And it was so exciting then to see the response. And we really used Barbie as a way to explore all these issues around Jewish identity because what they don't say in the movie, and I was waiting the whole time when they showed Ruth Handler, is to say, and Ruth Handler was Jewish. Now, those of us that are Jewish know that Ruth Handler was Jewish and Rhea Perlman's Jewish, but a lot of people didn't because I asked. And that to me is one of the greatest ironies of the 20th century is that the Barbie doll, like the ultimate shiksa, was created by a Jewish woman. And not only that, but Barbie is based on a German sex toy doll from World War II. So there was so many elements to explore about assimilation and so many Jews that came to America and changed their names and changed their noses and do, did all of these things to try to fit into America to become an insider. So the fact that an outsider, which a lot of Jews feel like, created the ultimate insider was like a great um, irony and device to play with to explore some really deep issues in the film, my film, The Tribe, about... 
uh, identity and assimilation and wrestling with what does it mean to be Jewish today. So it's been really fun. Um, well, we re-released the film right before the Barbie film came out. And um, it's just been really interesting to look at a work that you made so long ago. And it, you know, we spent a lot of time on that script and it still is the way we feel about, about a lot of the issues. I had a sort of mixed response to the film. I mean, I liked it. It was entertaining. It was a bit muddled by my lights and yes, the plot seemed, to, yeah. seemed kind of animated too. Although I, I like Greta Gerwig and she co-wrote the film with her husband, Noah Baumbach. Uh, the, um, the response to the film has been overwhelmingly positive though, except interesting couple of exceptions. Uh, who both happen to be Jewish. Gloria Steinem did not like the film. Oh, I didn't read her review. Uh, what did she say? Well, she just said some negative things about it. And uh, the other one who huh. hated the film, and there are a lot of people who admittedly hate him, especially on the left, was Ben Shapiro, who actually, I think, destroyed Barbie and Ken Dolls yes. to show his I disdain and his, his anger. But like you say... The doll was based on what was known as Lil's doll, which was a German doll. It's a kind of Nordic stereotype, blonde hair and blue eyes, like Tiffany Schlein. Um, <laughs> I mean, breaking well, down. I mean, trust me. I mean, being a blonde, blue-eyed Jew named Tiffany Schlein, like my parents didn't name me Ruth or a traditional Jewish name. And, and my husband's name is Ken, and he's also a blonde, blue-eyed Jew. So we were also wrestling in the film with being Jewish and most people not knowing it. I mean, my husband's last name is Goldberg. They know with him, but my last name doesn't have a C in the last name. Oh, wait a minute. Whoopi's name is Goldberg, too. It doesn't, you don't have to be Jewish. <laughs> that's true. Well, it's an interesting thing. To, it was always a choice. I mean, not now since I've made a lot of work that speaks to Jewish issues, but most of my life until I was made the tribe, no one ever knew I was Jewish. And it was always a choice whether I said it. And I heard a lot of anti Semitism said in front of me. And I really, I also wrestled with the fact that I was named something to hide my Jewishness, um, although my family's Ukrainian. But, you know, my grandfather lost his whole family in the Holocaust, except for one brother. Um, so it's um, it's a, just an interesting thing to wrestle with and think about. So that was originally um, why... I was interested. It was almost like Barbie um, was like a Trojan horse. That's what Ken and I talked about. Her This doll, which has so many feelings. People love her. They hate her. I even have a line in the tribe that Gloria Steinem's hates Barbie. So that's funny that she hated the movie. But anyways, um, but the other line that I have in the film, which still makes me laugh, and it made me laugh when we wrote it, is that Ruth Handler, who made a fortune from the Barbie doll, she also had a double mastectomy and was one of the first companies that made prosthetic boobs, breasts. And so I say, um, she made two fortunes from plastic boobs, which I still think is so funny. Anyways, but back to whatever we were, I was just saying that I think that the Barbie doll, there's so much projected onto what a Barbie doll can mean. Like my producer of 17 years, Sawyer Steele, is trans. And he was, you know, like, why didn't they explore the non-binary and trans? And, and even though they do have a trans actor in it, but he felt like there could have been so much more exploration, which I totally agree with. So I think Barbie is something that everyone projects a lot of stuff onto, which is why it's so great to use or it was so great for the documentary to explore all these issues. Well, there are many issues related to it. You've touched on some things that maybe uh, some felt should have been in there that weren't in there. But what was in there certainly was a lot about patriarchy and a lot about mm -hmm. male hegemony and all of those sorts of things. And you have also, I said, I wanted to talk with you before we get to AI and some of these sexier, by many people's lights topics. Um, your own sense has always been to commit yourself to feminism yeah. and 
Um, I wondered about not only the effect of the film from that perspective on you, because your film was full of dioramas and slam poetry and all kinds of things that really mm -hmm. made it very lively and, and showed a lot about feminist history. And here you are in dendrofeminology, I mean, with this tree project. And let's talk about that because it's kind of fascinating yeah. to me. But first, I got to ask you, why the U.S. naval ships? Oh, the U.S. Naval... I remember it was the... <laughs> I was at a conference. Like, the, the tribe still gets shown today at universities all over, uh, interfaith groups and Jewish groups at universities all over the world. And I was at a conference, and this guy comes up to me, and he was like, I'm the chaplain that ordered the tribe for every U.S. naval ship for the interfaith program. And I just remember just like, what? What did you just say? <laughs> and he goes, that is on every ship. And we have this program, this interfaith screening program, and it, we always show the tribe. And I thought, I think that surpasses any filmmaking achievement I could have ever wanted because you want your films to be a a spark for discussion about deep issues. And the tribe seems like it's just about the Barbie doll, but as you know, it goes deep and wide on some heavy issues and um, of history and, um, and so many things. So I think probably learning that fact, and I still see him, he'll still be in touch with me about it being screened. And it means so much to me because, you know, just that that kind of film... <laughs> It's playing on ships. Um, well, even I was thinking, I was reading a young woman whose father is Chinese and mother is Jewish, and she was talking about how much the film meant to her, how it shaped yeah. her thinking, her identity, her feeling that she could have multiple identities and feel perfectly comfortable with a kind of hybridized um, identity. That yeah. was very touching. I mean, yeah, that, that article, uh, which just came out, and how much the Trimentor meant so much to me. I mean, again, it's like what you hope for is that. Uh, a piece of work that you wrote and you spoke your truth that it it speaks to so many different people i mean that is just it means so much to me and and going back to dendrofeminology um and just to explain to the listeners what it is is i grew up right near mere woods like i mean michael and i live near each other um and i was always so impressed by the tree slice at the entrance of mere woods or at any national park where they they take the tree timeline and they show you different events in history that have happened since the tree was born and when it fell and i was always just so impressed with that as a concept but i hated what was on there it was like all patriarchal and colonialistic i'm like where am i there's not one woman mentioned on there and it was always this very male uh, Christopher Columbus discovered America and World War this. And it was a very male view on history. And during COVID, I was spending a lot of time on Mount Tam with my dog and my family and thinking a lot about history and time and perspective and um, started making art. And um, I got this artist in residency at the Ferry Building in the city with Shack 15. And, and there was a lot of space. And I, I just remember thinking, I want to create a feminist history cheering. And I've made films. I made this one film called 5050 um, about the 10,000 year history of women in power. So I've done a lot of re deep research on the subject. And I thought, how fabulous. I want to see that. I want Ken's and my two daughters to see a feminist history. And I start with the very first dot. And this I'm is, excuse me, what they call her story instead of his story. Right? <laughs> exactly. And I, exactly. Um, you know, my mother's a psychologist, and um, she was always a big feminist. And my father was a feminist. He wrote about goddess culture, and he always asked, why was it that in every civilization women were worshipped as goddesses? And what was the single event that kept changing goddesses to gods? And patriarchy would develop, and women were taken down in society. So he wrote a whole book about it that I think, Michael, you probably interviewed him on your show for. 
So I grew up in this stew of two wonderful feminist parents. So when I did that tree ring, I started with 50,000 years ago, women were worshipped as goddesses in every single civilization. And I thought that's a much better place to start the story. Because most people start with, we don't have power, but we actually started with power. So it's a really, um, in some ways, I look at this tree ring like a film, and I spent a lot of time distilling all the research from my films into these 30 points on the timeline. And I talk about 10,000 years ago when women were shamans and healers and all genders were respected. And then I start talking about literacy being introduced because that was my father's theory on why patriarchy started, a kind of rewiring of the brain in, some, in different cultures. Um, and then I show the patriarchy building in. But I also show the push-pull of power where witches were burned, courageous women were burned basically at the stake. And I also showed moments in history where women were leaders just out of the blue in an area. And then I go through the first second and third wave of feminism. And as I was finishing the tree ring, Roe v. Wade um, happened. I mean, Do the Dobbs decision happened and I wasn't ending the tree ring there. So I said, even though that reproductive rights were eviscerated in the United States, 65 other countries have legalized abortion for in the last year. Even though we haven't had a woman president, the last line, it says 86 countries have had women as the heads of state or prime minister. So again, showing the push-pull of history and... Um, there's a lot of space below it of what is going to happen. And um, the National Women's History Museum um, and Women Connect for Good, it, they're installing the Dendro Feminology is the name of the tree ring on the National Mall in D.C. November 1st and 4th. And uh, we are doing a lot of activist um, art and activism together, things in D.C. for that happening. But to me, it's a real, you know, Dobbs happened in our country and nothing happened. Oh, we should mention for people who aren't aware, Dobbs overturned Roe v. Wade, and Dobbs is now probably going to be at the center of political battles in terms of access to abortion. Central. Absolutely. So when that happened, you know, when Trump was elected, you know, the Women's March happened, and we just showed visually, like, we are here, we are half this country, and we matter. And Dobbs happened, and it was like such a, a gut, you know, punch to the stomach, even though I think a lot of us were thinking it could happen— and here we are, the the 2023 election is going to happen in November. There's 93, over 93,000 races on the ballot this year. And then it's also the one-year marker to the presidential election. So we're very excited to bring this um, artwork to the mall and to remind people that our democracy is made up of these 93,000 points and there are no off years and we need to I think we need a new visual. So to have this very round, feminine, uh, dendro feminology at the base of the reflecting pool in front of the Washington Monument with this huge phallic symbol in our country, and most every monument in D.C. We're getting is into more Georgia O'Keeffe territory here, aren't we? <laughs> exactly. It to me is like, and you know, my producers trans. We're partnering with trans groups, gay groups, like basically tr reproductive rights and trans rights are being taken away. And then we're showing the intersectionality of all these issues with climate justice, gender justice. I've made a lot of films. I think I was on your show once for my feature documentary, Connected. I was trying to think of the different points that I was on for them, and I, I think it was for Connected, but that was about the interconnectedness and interdependence of all issues. So. I think it's another medium and another iteration of all of my work about um, interdependence and justice and being engaged in our democracy. Well, congratulations on that. And uh, the political races will be very interesting, especially in light of uh, to what extent this will dominate in terms of where people are going to vote, especially in those states that will make the difference. Um, well, yeah. you're also an artist and, I mean... 
you've talked about being excited by AI, and I wanted to get into this with you because uh, there are a lot of people, of course, who are very fearful of AI. You say you use it all the time. Um, in fact, there are just so many things that are exciting and that are inspiring. There's a story I just happened to read. Many may have seen it about a woman who lost her voice because of... Um, she had yeah. a, she had a, a, a very serious stroke. stroke. Yeah. Uh, in fact, it was her brain. The stroke was in her brain, the stem of her brain, and she was a thirty year old woman. Now she has her voice back thanks to AI. That's eighteen years later. I mean, Amazing. it's an unbelievable story and a very poignant story. But the fact of the matter is, I, I know you've kind of, and your husband's a professor of robotics, but you you both probably be. I imagine somewhat dismissive of this idea that the AI and robots are going to take us over, but there are things to be fearful about, and there are there are you know darker sides. I'm not only talking about job loss; I'm talking yeah. about you know the bad yeah, actors. It's not, I think it's never good to be Pollyanna about everything, but I think Ken's and my reaction to all. Oh, you guys the, are very enthusiastic, though. I mean, you really well, are. I think we're trying to kind of counter. I never like to lead by fear. I mean, I just think philosophically. Whenever there's something new and you're just afraid of it, you're never going to engage with it. And any technology is like good or bad, anything. It's an extension of humans. So Marshall McLuhan would talk about technology being an extension of us. So we have created this technology. It's an extension of our ability to think. And it could either be used for bad or good. So if you just come from a place of fear, you're going to be too scared to engage with it. And then the wrong people are going to be leading using it from probably not the best space. So I, you know, and after being, you know, four years under Trump's leadership of just fear, 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 it's just never, ever how I approach anything. And I think curiosity, which you're one of my favorite curious minds, curiosity and engagement on how could this be used for good? What could I use this for? And, um, you know, the, and and I'm mar being married to Ken, who for, um, we've been together over 25 years. And ever since I've known him, like every couple of years, it says a headline, like robots are going to take over the world. And he's always like, they're not going to take over the world. I work in robotics. And it's just, it is not going to happen. And I think it's just this, Ken and I probably, you know, he just wrote this great op-ed about creativity and AI. Um, I think we we enjoy showing people how it can be used for good and to invite people to actually use it and to see for themselves. Because if you don't, you're just going to be like, oh my gosh, this thing is going to extinguish humans, which has been said. I remember, I mean, every new technology, there is such a fear around it. Even when I was starting the Webby Awards, I mean, I remember people being like, this web, this thing, they were so scared of it. And that's when I created the Webby Awards. Like, let me give you a positive framework to help you think about this new medium. Is that why you started the Webby Awards? To, to be um, on the positive side? Let me, well... I think it was really, I was very excited by it. It felt like a very, um, you know, when I was in high school, so I told you my family's Ukrainian. So my grandfather who escaped from U Odessa, Ukraine, when he was 16, he never wanted to talk about Odessa, the the place. And I was fascinated. Here's, this is where my family's from. I hear yeah. I have this name that disguises all of that. You and also like, named a child Odessa, didn't you? We named, a, Ken and I both have family from Odessa. And, um, and it's been very scary reading the news when they're like, Odessa's been bombed by Putin. It's just like, I can't even tell you. But um, 
Anyway, so when I was in high school, I he never wanted to talk where, about where our family was from. And so I was fascinated. And, you know, that's that age you're a teenager. You're trying to understand who you are, where you come from. And so I was really into computers. And this was before the web. So this is 1987, 1998. But I, I did have a Mac. And I used to have a modem and I would connect to the library, which was incredibly exciting to me. And this one of my best friends was from Iran, also an enemy country. You know, at the time, the Soviet Union was the enemy in every Bond film. And we both together wrote this proposal called Uniting Nations in Telecommunications and Software. And the concept was that computers, students from enemy countries would communicate over the modem. And maybe one day we could communicate, there could be translating software, and we could have a better world understanding. So from this very simple idea, um, I wrote a proposal that I sent to Congresswoman Barbara Boxer, 1988, of this idea for UNITAS. And from that, so at this point I was 18 years old, I was invited to be a student ambassador in the Soviet Union. So right before I went to UC Berkeley, I went to the Soviet Union to talk about the power of what computers could do when they were connected. So I get there, and here I'm from Mill Valley. I had my own personal computer. No one had personal computers there. They were in bread lines. It was one of the most, like, it was such a, the place felt deflated in just as a people. And that was actually the first time I got my, like, my bubble was burst on a big idea that it was like, oh, this is so not going to happen. Then I, I went, or not yet. And then I went to UC Berkeley, and I studied all sorts of different things. And and eventually film was like, this is what I want to do. And I was always, um, you know, raising money for my films and I would work in technology. And I was working in technology to pay for one of my films. And I was working on a CD-ROM because that was the big thing of the day. And I was working on a CD-ROM about Sting, the musician. And it was like one of my first jobs. Well, I had the privilege of interviewing. uh, Oh, he's amazing. I loved working. I was like, he was, (laughs) that's a whole other story. Anyways, I'm working on the CD-ROM. It's like 1994. And somebody says to me, Tiffany, you have to see this thing called the web. There are people all over the world talking about how much they love Sting's music on a thing called a website. And I was like, oh my gosh, that's what I was writing about in high school. It's here. It's here. And I literally almost, I mean, it took a couple months to make this all happen, but came back to San Francisco at the time I was living in Seattle And I started working for the web magazine and I was given the opportunity um, because, you know, I was just like, I was in my 20s to start the Webby Awards um, from scratch. And there was a editorial board, um, the web magazine. So I was so excited to like run with this idea of giving it a framework um, to think about because it was so new at the time and people were scared of it. Again, they were had it came from a place of fear. I'm like, well, if, if I model, you know, um, the magazine actually eventually folded, but when that did, I created an International Academy of Digital Arts and Sciences that I co-founded with people I was working with. And we went to PricewaterhouseCoopers and said, we want to make this as big as I think the web is going to be. So when you ask me, why did I create the web? <laughs> that was a very long answer, but it was like the thing that I had hoped that could bring, connect people all over the world and connect ideas was finally here. And and that's when I started the Webby Award. So, and that was like, you know, almost a decade of my life. All that connectedness is where we are now, and it was supposed to bring great, positive, extraordinary kinds of things, and it did. It has. But it's also brought disinformation. But I it's mean, brought January tremendous 6th, disinformation. Yeah, I, January 6th was, to me, the uh, pinnacle of the result of disinformation. And when all those people showed up there, and they were like believing so many lies and, and directed to take over the... I mean, to me, that moment was like, oh my God, this is the worst of the web. But all the scientists coming together for COVID was the best of the web. And like, I think 
It's good, bad, and everything in between. And if you don't engage with it, guess what's going to happen? The people that aren't going out for good. So I'm a true believer, any new technology, play with it, experiment with it. Like, don't be just told it's horrible and and be fearful. Well, we're starting to get questions and I want to go to them. Uh, This is Francis from Charlotte, North Carolina, who says, where do you think AI will have the largest positive impact on the world? Well, like you just said that, I mean, I think medical research is really exciting. Um, my nephew is just applying to medical school and he works with, you know, large language models and some of the research he does. So what I think AI is most exciting for is giving a whole, like you can say, read these seven books and tell me the links. You can show two patents and say, is there something they're both not doing? Like I think giving uh, medical research and coming up with cancer treatments or new approaches, or I think that's super interesting. Um, and creatively, I, I, you mentioned I'm using it. So I'm doing a new film on the adolescent brain. And I've done, this is the third in a series of films about neuroscience. And I did, you know, birth to five years and then five to 12. And now I'm doing, you know, kind of nine to 18, 19 ish. And it'll and come out early. You've been what? using ChatGPT to probe, I read. Well, I do. I look at it as like a brainstorming tool. So, I will I will ask it a lot of questions and in in different ways and it forces you I mean you're so good at asking questions right so I think it's actually forcing humans to get better at asking questions and like figure out new ways to ask questions so it's pushing us so I guess I yes it will replace some jobs but as you have seen throughout history and I make a lot of documentaries you know the big concern when the written word was developed was that we would lose our memory we wouldn't be able to recite Homer, and we can't anymore. But we have collective knowledge to draw upon in books that we didn't have before. So I do think we constantly evolve and adapt. And I think ultimately, I do believe in humanity. And these tree rings, because I've done six of them now. I did the feminist history tree ring, but I did one on the evolution of human perspective. I've just added an AI line. I've done one on climate. What I think these tree rings is I love going really far back in time and looking at how we view the issue and then how it's changed. And that's what these timelines a lot are about. So I think whenever we get fearful, let's go back a hundred years on any issue. Have we evolved or have we gone backwards on any issue? Even what we're facing, any issue, women's rights, disabled rights, um, you know, gay and lesbian, trans, LGBTQ, like those, every issue, African-American, like, we have moved forward. We're not as far as we all want to be, but when you have the perspective of history, it does show you that we're, we could be moving in the right direction. It's a lot of two steps forward, one step back, but ultimately in the bigger picture, I do believe in humans. Well, I'm, <laughs> I'm struck by what you said before about Ukraine, though. We're still in you know a major war with Russia and Ukraine, and uh, there are wars all over the planet still, but I don't want to sound. And that, why do you think that's happening? That negative note, uh, because well, but I mean, I think because there's not a lot of women leaders. There's not as many as there should be. Because I'll tell you, if there were, there would not be as many wars. And oh, wait a I, second, I have to back up you for a moment because <laughs> some we've had some great women leaders, but all of almost every woman They're leader not you all name not against war. I agree. You know, but they've I all think, been in war, pretty much. Uh, Mrs. Budo, Golda Meir, uh, I mean, if you name a woman leader, pretty much, you'll find that there was war. Sometimes to prove they had that kind of strong masculine. Well, that's interesting. Whatever, yeah. I think what you just said is that if you look, or even Margaret Thatcher, like, yeah. I think I think you could say 
because the percentage is so small in the larger picture of, of leaders. And that's a whole other thing of like the structures aren't set up to like also be a mother and be in, well, they are, you can figure out how to do it, but it's certainly not supported by society with childcare and all of these other things, but are the kind of leaders that have been women, because I have a big list, they're not all for war. And, and are those women, were they trying to prove something to be in that men's world? That's a whole other thing. But I think as a human being, I think that if you make a child, literally grow them in your body, you're not going to want to have them die. And I think just philosophically, um, if more women and the whole spectrum of gender were represented more in leadership positions, you would see a different world than you're seeing today. We go to some more questions. Hal from St. Louis says, with social media in disarray, where do we go next? And I was struck by something actually you said about social media. I want to go to his question, but first I wanted to uh, bring attention to the fact that you said social media is just something I read that you wrote, connecting us more broadly but not deeply, and I think that's absolutely right. But it's also, you know, creating all kinds of dreadful things, I mean, especially among adolescents. And I want to talk with you about Teenage Brains because that's your next movie. And I know you've done a lot of research in cognitive and neuroscience with teenagers, something that fascinates and concerns me. But where do you see social media going? I mean, uh, you've had a certain ability to predict certain things and prognosticate. And Where are we and where are we headed on social media? Well, that's a great question. Um, I think the big thing that even allows me to have the insight about any of these things is that my family and I, for 14 years, like turn off screens one day a week. So as much as I've been an advocate for technology, and Ken has, we're Jewish, we're not religious, but we have implemented this, we call it Tech Shabbat, um, where we turn off every, you know, we turn off the screens from Friday night to Saturday night. I'm just about to turn them off tonight, so I'm always excited about that. And excuse me, it's and not you know only what? Jewish, it's the hundreds of cultures have that day oh, of, of course. rest. Yeah, yeah. And, and unfortunately, in most cultures, like... Christianity, Islam, everyone values this um, stillness and this a, a day or time that's different than the other times. The problem is, is that in today's society, usually the most extreme observant people are the only people that do that practice. And we've never needed it more. So when I started doing Shabbat, which we had always done like the dinners occasionally, but we really started going, okay, we're going to make this day feel like a whole different day. Like we're not going to be available to the world. We're going to be present. We're going to take a long walk in nature. We're going to have time to think. I do a lot of journaling on that day. And for my kids, they might be bored. They're going to just sit and we're all going to just be together. And it has been the most profound thing I've done in my life. I think I I usually, I look forward to thinking the most on Saturday. Um, and when you mention things like so social media, which I think is interesting because it's not all bad. And, you know, like my producer who's trans, the only way he could connect to somebody else who was trans when he was a teenager was someone in another state online. And I have a teenage daughter right now who's so connected to her friends on social media and on the phone and on text. And I remember when I was a teenager in the early 80s, with my phone attached to the wall and I would drag the cord and pull the phone into my bedroom so I could just stay talking to them until the latest possible hour. Well, a lot of that is them just like texting and FaceTiming. And it's interesting because I would say the majority of what my daughter does is connecting with her best friends. And then there's that percentage. And the part that I hate is the kind of performative, you know, highlight version of life that isn't real, that everyone's doing. Um, but I know that I also... 
And I go through periods where I'm on it too much. And then I can't wait for my Shabbat. I'm like, oh my God, I get rid of that. And I kind of reset my brain and it builds the muscle of being able to be comfortable with being alone. So I think that's one of the biggest things is that I've learned through Shabbat. And I think it's taught our children is to be comfortable with being alone and just being with whoever's in the room with you or yourself, which sometimes is uncomfortable. And, you know, in all of the neuroscience, whatever you do more will strengthen that part of your brain. And what you do less will strengthen that part. It will weaken that part. It will atrophy that part. In the meantime, we're all concerned about the neuro or the neural pathways that are at least affecting or being affected by all this looking at devices all the time. I want to get to that with you, but let me go to a question first, a provocative question from Jerry in Aurora, Colorado, who says, you said scientists coming together on COVID was the best of the web, but the scientists led by Dr. Fauci were wrong on masks, business closings, school shutdowns that will affect us for years. How do you justify? Well, I would say that, you know, having a lot of thinking a lot about the scientific method is a lot of unknowns. And there's a lot of things that you're going to, because you don't know what's happening and you're going to try a lot of things. Um, I don't agree. I think we will agree to disagree about masks. Coming from a family of doctors and how much masks, even in the surgery room, it protects you from illness. I think there was a lot of missteps because no one knew what was happening and we had never been at that moment in history. I think if we hadn't had the web there have been pandemics. The last pandemic, there was no web to share information or figure out what to do. So I was, the fact that we could do Zoom and online anything during that period, I was so grateful for the web. So, um, you know, I think there's, there was a lot of coming together in the scientific community around what to do around COVID and vaccines and sharing information about that. So it wasn't like 100%, like nothing ever is. Being humans are messy. There's a lot of different opinions. But I think on the whole, we had never all focused on a problem together. I mean, just watching the Oppenheimer film, there's been a lot of times where we've been racing to beat the other country on something. But this felt like we were all um, trying to figure something out. And when you try to figure something out, you don't know everything. There's a lot of unknowns. And we need to we need to create room for that where it's like, we're all human. No one's perfect. No one knows everything. And I think the problem is when people act like they know everything or they don't leave room for the unknown and to try to figure it out. And the mistakes are going to happen. And that's the scientific method. And that's the method of, of just living. Well, what do we know about the effect on the brain now of adolescence, of all of the machinery that, and all yeah, of the things that come through the web and the internet and social media and, and smartphones, by the way, which I know you have advocated uh, I think you said quite, in, uh, I think insightfully, that maybe it shouldn't be seen as an addiction. Maybe it's like binge eating. Uh, they mm-hmm. got to regulate it more. I think that makes a good deal of sense. Yeah, that's right. And I think that is what the tech Shabbats do, is it like builds in this regulation each week that helps you self-regulate. And when you're doing it too much, I always know we're all going to go off of it and you just feel like this exhale. But it does, you know, anything you do more of, you're going to want more of. And I think... um it's important to understand that you're not always going to be entertained, numbed, desensitized. Like you're not going to always have something there because the truth is when you just sit with yourself, first of all, you're going to have really interesting thoughts. Like my day uh, without screens, I have my best ideas and there's a neuroscience term called the default mode network. And it refers to the network when you're not directing it anywhere. And it's basically allowing you to process everything you've learned or experienced. And basically the way we're living now, if we're constantly getting input from headlines and email and texts, there's not a moment to just be and think and do the inner work. 
And sometimes that's not great. Sometimes you have feelings, you're like, oh, I'm uncomfortable with this. Oh, I better go on my phone. But or else you're like, what is this? Let me, or what is this little voice inside of me saying I need to change my job or I need to do this project or I need to be with this person? Excuse so, me, Tiffany, did you read Jenny O'Dell's book, How to Do Nothing? I didn't. I went to her talk. Um, I've heard her speak mm-hmm. and I haven't read her book, but I feel like it goes deep into what I'm talking about, right? Yeah, it's worth reading. I mean, because there are a lot of people who say, gee, if I take a day off, what am I going to do? I, I'm not productive. I'm not making any money. I'm <laughs> it's not, my you know, most creative. Yeah. It's like the soil, you know, the whole idea of Sabbath and sabbatical comes from the term Sabbath of like the whole concept that professors every seven years need to take a break and like do something else. And it's all about putting your mind in a different mode of thinking. So I think that's what it's really taught me is um, how to think differently. This one day a week, I'm very present you know, being in nature really returns me to my senses and perspective. So um, I do worry um, about that with teens, but I also know, I also know that, you know, there's a lot of life cycles and eventually you have to, you're going to be in a relationship that's going to require more attention. And then you're going to have children which require more attention. And then you're going to think about how much your behavior affects their behavior. So I think being a teen is so like, it is so a moment in time. And as I'm exploring in this film, you're learning how to be brave. You're trying out different identities, which social media is actually good for experimenting with. I My daughter said, I see on TikTok a lot, like, people speaking their mind and it inspires me. And so it's not all bad. And actually I'm part of this um, council called the Digital Wellness Lab that's out of Harvard's Boston Children's Hospital and Dr. Michael Rich heads it up. And they just came out with a study. It's not all bad. I think, again, do we lead by fear or do we say, are there some things that are valuable for teens to feel connected? And then we say, and then there's some things we should work out for. But if we're all like, this is horrible, it's ruining teens. It's just, it's just, I don't think that's real actually too, is I think there are some pros, there's some cons, and it's about self-regulation. And as a parent, so much of what you're teaching your kid is like modeling behavior and teaching them how to self-regulate. Like you shouldn't have sweets all the time. You shouldn't have sugar all the time. Like somebody was telling me that when he was younger, he ate candy all the time. And eventually he's like, wait, this isn't good for me. I'm not going to have candy all the time, but sometimes it kind of takes growing up to realize like food is information. And if I'm eating sugar all day, it's, I'm not going to feel so good. So I think there's also a level of maturity of like, how do I want to have relationships and how am I going to evolve? And teenage years is all about emotionally brilliant, learning how to be brave, risk-taking. Your prefrontal cortex is growing slower than all your, your hippocampus and your amygdala. So it's like, in this short eight-minute film that will come out next year, we're going to try to distill all these very complicated ideas into some metaphors, and we're going to t- talk to teens and the adults that love them and try to kind of unpack a lot of issues around being a teen today. I look forward to that. And also, ought to mention here that um, you've talked about the Shabbat, and you don't have to be Jewish like the old Levy's Ryburn. No, uh, my book is for adds, everybody. Uh, um, it's liberating and transformative. Uh, I mean, those are big words, but you also talk even about rest being seen in connection with technology, rest itself. Some more questions, and I thank uh, all who are sending us questions. Uh, comments are good, too, if you want to send them. Welcome those as well. This is Grant from Adelaide, Australia, who says, considering the belief that all repetitive jobs will eventually be automated, how do you see AI and robotics Contributing to the advancement of gender equality, are there ethical considerations to keep in mind as we move in that direction? That is such a great question. Yes. Um, I've just actually heard of like three new people in AI and ethics positions that I know. So I think there's a lot of, I mean, 
you know, there's a lot of issues around race and gender with search engines. So I definitely think this is super important. Um, and I'm so glad that you brought it up. And I think that a lot of companies are realizing that they need to focus on it. And it's companies, but it's also citizens of like, what are the important issues? That This goes back to us all engaging with it and not just being scared of it, of like, you know, and I'm excited. Like my my daughter, who's a junior, um, who's studying cognitive science, she's thinking about these things too. So there's a whole generation of young people that are growing up with this whole chat GBT and like, what is going to come from their thinking around it? Because I would say they're more progressive, the younger people, and they've got this new technology and what are they going to bring up? So um, that's what gives me hope is when I, because, you know, being even a teen, you know, you're, you're at a very kind of, uh, you're figuring out how to be courageous and you're figuring out who you are and what you value. And so this is, they're coming up at a time where there's this huge new technology, kind of like when the web happened when I was young, I was like, what is this? What could this be? And like, you know, and the Webby Awards, which are now in their like 27th year, I don't run them anymore. And, you know, I think it's 17 years ago I sold it, but um, I care about it because I care because it's about the Webby Awards were about honoring the best of the web and saying, this is the standard of excellence, ethical issues. They're doing the best work on the web in all these different categories. So maybe if there was something like that around AI, like how do we look at what it could be in each of these areas, gender justice, climate change? Like what if we looked at it and said, what could this be in all of those? I mean, I'm not going to, I'm not saying I'm starting an AI award, but I'm saying like, it, it's about figuring out how it could be used for good in all of these different aspects of life. And there are going to be jobs that are going to go away, but what what are going to be the new jobs? I mean, I think that's so interesting. I mean, Zoom wasn't readily available. Remote work was like, what? I mean, every working woman has wanted more opportunities for remote work because we want to be engaging with the world and to be good parents and to be home probably to take them to doctors. And remote work, I think that's one of the most lasting things from the pandemic is there's more flexibility. Now, I also think there's value with being in person. So that's like a totally separate conversation. And my team and I, we speak to companies about ideas of a day of rest and remote work. And how do you, when do you, how can you be intentional about when you're in person and when you're online? But I think even the fact that Zoom has radically changed in the pandemic, radically changed how people work. You could say no one saw that coming that quickly. And suddenly we're having a whole new way that we can exist in the world and contribute and make a living. So I a think lot of this of these... is adapting. I mean, you've said we adapt That's to right. technologies and you're, I mean, you're clearly hopeful that we're going to adapt to AI. I have another we're question from Katie in Los Angeles. Why did you choose only one day a week without screens? Why not two or three? <laughs> I, I like any idea that's lasted for thousands of years. In Buddhism and Judaism and Islamic, I, I love looking at ideas in Christianity that have lasted a long time. The golden rule, Shabbat. I'm not a religious person, but I love an idea. Now, for thousands of years, the Jewish people say, from Friday night to Saturday night, no work. And that idea, again, mostly just Orthodox Jews do it, but it's a brilliant idea. I feel like I can contribute so much more to everything after my day of rest. I'm like supercharged. I think we've never needed that day. And when I when I wrote the book 24-6, I really say anyone can do this. I mean, my favorite emails from people are like not Jewish that are like, I read your book and I started doing this with my family. And I'm like, oh my gosh, because I think 
I think that's what's so exciting about great ideas from different cultures is that anyone can, if they're a really good idea, anyone can engage with it. You're also saying that it gives more meaning to life, aren't you? It does. Because what is, you know, I think meaning is being um, present for the important moments. I think it's meaning is being, feeling like you're part of something bigger than yourselves. And I think um, on Friday night, when I know people all over the world are also having a Shabbat dinner, and there's a lot of people also taking a day of rest, I feel connected to something larger than myself. And what I'm trying to do in DC um, in November is remind us all that we're part of something larger than ourselves, which is our democracy. And it's in peril right now. And we need to engage with it and not be scared that all these rights are being taken away. And we need to go and make a positive visual statement and coming together to engage with the issues that matter to us. Are the neural pathways changing, though? I mean, you've done a lot of study of cognitive science. This is one of the things that scares me, particularly in young people, just from looking at their devices for so long and spending mm-hmm. so many times with them. There's a lot of research that suggests that that is indeed the case. Well, I, I do worry about the reading component. I mean, I even know for myself, I can see my own attention to reading decline. And my best reading happens on my day without screens because when I read the other six days, there's a line in the book that makes me think of something on the internet that I have to look up and suddenly I'm off the book. When I read on Shabbat, I'm reading. And so even I, I know my reading and I know that I I talk to my friends whose kids are reading so much less unless it's assigned to them. And that does worry me because I think, again, reading makes you think in a different way. Oh, excuse me. One of the reasons they're reading less also is they're reading texts and emails and not necessarily reading books uh, and don't necessarily have— You're skimming. Don't, don't necessarily have—yeah, skimming more, but also the patience to sit down and actually read a book and encounter right. with a book. Yeah, and do some work yourself when you're reading it because you're imagining, you're thinking, you're. I, I think um, so. I do. I do worry about that. And but but Ken will say, okay. So this is then I worry, and then Ken goes, I feel like students at UC Berkeley are smarter than they were ten years ago. He will say he feels like they're as a professor. Uh, I can attest to that too. In a lot of ways, yeah. They are. As a professor, yeah. he's yeah. You feel that too? Yeah, yeah, but not in the ways that customarily we always associate it with intellect. I mean, that goes into greater depth and that goes probing, to use a word I used before about what you do with chat GPT. They're, in other words, less patient. They want the knowledge quicker and everything. But in terms of what they can do spatially, what they can do, you know, in terms of what they've learned from all these technological devices, their minds are much quicker and more rapid. They work with greater alacrity. It's interesting that you say that too, because I think, um, you know, I'm a believer that with every new technology, and especially with ChatGPT, we just need to double down on what it means to be human, that ChatGPT and computers will never replace, which is like our sense of empathy, um, humor, taking initiative, all these things that AI is never going to be able to do. Um, Actually, Ken would say that creativity, but I, I, I've, no, it's, I've it's the old idea of the human. man versus the machine. I'm sorry to use man in the generic sense <laughs> here, but that's what it was always labeled as. And the machines yeah, and were, th- fear, there was always a fear that the machines would take over, going way back you know, before. And again, yeah. I feel that's such a, again, going back to the female male thing, like, I don't, I mean, I wonder, I, I haven't thought of this before, but I wonder how tied it is to like, making a human in your body and being like, yeah, a machine could never do that. I mean, I think the reproductive rights issue in our country is really about men having power over women. 
Like there's no, it is about when we don't have a choice over how many children we have, we will never be able to engage at, in society at a certain level and we'll stay poor and probably uneducated. And that is the ultimate power struggle is reproductive choice. Um, and tying this back to um, fear over machines, it, there is a link. I have to think about it more, but this whole idea of us being replaced by machines. Like, I don't know many women that think that. It's interesting. I, I have to think about that more because there's something about, maybe it's an, a feeling of inadequacy as a man because you can't create another human. So you project all this stuff on these machines that are going to make you oh, wait a um, second. A lot irrelevant. Of the, a lot of those uh, <laughs> advocates uh, from the trans community are saying, Men can't be pregnant. Men can, in other words. Well, that's right. I and, mean, it's and you like, shouldn't necessarily talk about pregnancy as being, or ch childbearing as being strictly for women, because no longer right. is that the case. Uh, and there are many people who are offended by that. You know, who say, "Wait, the biological differences are clear." And if you've got an athlete who's competing, you know, in swimming, for example, who has testosterone, it's not fair. Born as a man, and yet. That I, that athlete has changed identities, has changed genders. So we're in kind of whole new fluid territory We're in a whole now. new area. And I think the fact that um, we are, you know, this goes back to the feminist history tree ring line I have on there. It's like 10,000 years ago when uh, women were leaders and healers and multiple genders were respected. So it's like... We're in a new terrain and we're also maybe going back to a previous way of thinking. And we're definitely in a new period. And I think the resistance to any change or um, you're seeing a lot of that too, because change is uncomfortable for a lot of people, a lot of people that really want it and we want to progress and evolve. And a lot of people want to go back to the way it was. So um, I think that's the struggle you're seeing in our country. It's a right struggle now. with a lot of anger and hostility, unfortunately as well, and animus. But I'm going to go to another question from down under from Adelaide, Australia. How about starting the Intelli awards? <laughs> Sorry, that's funny, and that's that's a good idea. But I'm not going to start that because I already did that in the first part of my career. But somebody should do that. Actually, the company that um, I sold the Webby Awards now they have all these other award shows, and one of them they have is called the Telly Awards for television. So the Intellies is very funny, and, and that might even so who knows? Somebody could be listening. They're like. That's I actually a idea. won a Tully Award. I, won, I, I didn't win oh, it personally. <laughs> well, I, I was involved in making a film, uh, and I was <laughs> interviewing people, and it won a Tully Award. Uh, so, Mazel tov. Yeah, well, I've got a little <laughs> plaque for that, and it's, it's, it was very nice, actually. But uh, you've won a lot of awards for filmmaking, and maybe we ought to talk about that for a moment. I mean, for example, The Tribe, I think, won award, didn't it, as Best Documentary? It's won a lot of awards. I mean, it's such an interesting thing, awards, because I spent the first part of my life giving awards. And then and then I have received awards in this phase of my life. And I have to say, what I felt so fortunate when I ran the Webby Awards is I feel like some people grew up and never heard their parents say, you did a good job. And we really publicly, in a very grand, visible, grand way, were saying, good job. You've done a good job. And then we're saying to everyone else, look at that good job that person did and maybe try to aspire to that. So there's a Hebrew the or Yiddish word for this, actually. What? I mean, it's a word that may sound too hononym like covet or covet, kavod, which kavod. means you give someone respect, you give them recognition. Oh, they say kol havod or something? Yeah, kol havod means, you know, kol you're havod. giving. Uh, oh, yeah. Yeah. And so 
when I've received awards, it feels really good. I mean, I feel very, it feels very validating because you work so hard on something. Like when that reporter wrote that article a couple of weeks ago about the tribe and how it made her feel comfortable with being Jewish as an Asian Jewish person, that meant more than any award, I have to say, because it was like, but I mean, I think the the award like recognizes your work and I feel really grateful. I know a lot of people didn't feel recognized in their lifetimes. And it like pains me when I see somebody after they're gone getting like a recognition they didn't feel like they got, even though they should have. Or, and I guess I feel really lucky that I feel um, like I've worked really hard on, I really believe in my work. And when it gets recognized, it's very, it, it gives me fuel for the next hard thing I'm trying to do. Um, it's validating. It's validating. It is. I mean, anyone that doesn't say that is like lying. <laughs> <laughs> because, and 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 sometimes, like when I'm feeling really like I've been working really hard on this DC project, and we were we just met our matching grant, but I was, and then I got reminded of a previous. It gives me energy to keep doing the next thing. So, um, yeah, I I feel really lucky that I'm alive when that's happening. Um, well, we're lucky you're alive too. But what is the status <laughs> of the adolescent brain film now? Where are you at? Yeah, so we are, it's so fun because every week or so we have like... That's what it comes from having teenagers saying so fun, but I'm sorry, go ahead. Yeah. (laughs) Um, I'm young at heart. I hope I always stay that way. But I, you know, every couple of weeks we have this one and a half hour deep conversation with a neuroscientist and then we record it and we watch it and rewatch it. And um, so we've, um, there's 45 neuroscientists that are in this upcoming book by Ellen Galinsky um, that is all the latest neuroscience on the adolescent brain. So we're kind of working our way through. And our goal is to create a short film, like an, you know, I don't know, eight minute film that teens speak to teens and the adults that support them. So it'll come out March of next year, 2024. Um, And I'm, I, you know, I'm really excited to be making it, having a teen and I'm learning a lot. And tell us a little bit about what you've learned. I mean, especially since neuroscience is still, kind of a pioneering field in many ways and a field that has a lot of controversy associated with it too. Well, I think the interesting thing is we know more now than we ever have. So like when I was a teenager, you know, there was no, I didn't really think about why, why things were happening, why I was feeling a certain, why I was doing certain things. And now there's a real focus on neuroscience just in my lifetime and a lot of new research and a lot of like science behind ideas that validated ideas that you intrinsically thought were good. But then it's like the science is like, yeah, this is good for you. Like I write in a journal, like what I'm grateful for in the morning. And I know that word gratitude sounds so kind of like woo woo, but it it works. Like your brain naturally goes to the negative. And if you start your day with writing very specific things, not general things about things you're appreciating, it will help change the direction of your mind. So going back to the adolescent brain, which There's is, by the way, re- an undeveloped, an underdeveloped brain. I mean, it's still an immature brain. So that's right, and yeah, it's a very from zero to five is an incredible. Like your brain is growing faster than ever from birth to five years. So probably with your grandkids. Then there's this more stable period, and then from like nine to eighteen, nineteen, it's like again everything is getting kind of re-situated, renovated. And the prefrontal cortex, which is like your decision-making and planning, is like growing slower than a lot of the emotion. And so that's why there's a lot of um, metaphors that really should be debunked. Like you have no break. Teenagers have no breaks. Well, that's not really true. It's just one thing is growing slower than the other side. So we're actually going to try to um, 
present a lot of stereotypes about adolescence. And I'm really excited. I'm going to do like this montage of stereotypes from movies at the beginning. And then we're going to debunk some, but we're going to validate the feeling of other ones by some science. But I think this idea of um, that teenagers are learning how to be brave. So you could say, oh my God, they're taking all these risks. Well, they're also kind of trying to see the contours of bravery also and who they are. And they're trying on a lot of identities. And again, that happens on social media. And they're looking at a lot of people wearing different outfits, saying different things. Who am I? What do I feel? What do I think? And that they, um, this one um, doctor, um, Dr. Kenneth Ginsburg, who has a great resource website um, where you can get like daily emails about some latest findings. But he says that um, teenagers are emotionally brilliant. So you could say, oh my God, teenagers are so emotional. There's so many hormones. There's all these feelings. Or you could say they're emotionally brilliant because that's the really active part of their brain at that moment. So um, the film, our goal is to ask adolescents, we're going to ask them, how would you describe what it's like to be a teenager today? And what do you wish adults understood? Because I think that's an interesting question. And Ellen Galinsky, who's the author of this book we're, we're basing a lot of this on is really interested in that question and then we're going to teach very smart lady yeah. yeah what very smart lady i know her work oh you know yeah. her yeah. then we're gonna um you know really talk a lot about what's happening in your brain at this particular moment in development and then at the end of the film we're going to give some tools to help you navigate and best use your own brain and for adults on to understand a little bit more clearly what's going on so we have a lot of things we're trying to do in a short amount of time, which is my favorite creative challenge. Most of my films are shorts. I'd only made one feature documentary connected and the rest are shorts. And that's like the ultimate creative challenge is to take a complicated scientific idea and to distill it down into a way that's really accessible. Well, it's an exciting project and we'll look forward to obviously seeing it when it comes out. And uh, I look forward to talking to you. Uh, let me get to another question though, before we... Bid you adieu. Jim says, what do you think about the idea of going to a four-day work week? Just in general. There's been a lot of yeah, research yeah. that that's really productive. I think in Denmark or in... They've done... I mean, there is research um, that that is a really good... I mean, I almost... You know, Fridays, I'm really shutting down my week. I try to stop working by noon um, and then get ready for Shabbat and turning off my screens. But I love that idea. I I mean, it's you hard don't, to you say... You never like, feel indolent? A little bit lazy, like I'm not, because you're producing so much and working. I make so, so much, but because I think I work when I'm focused, I feel so charged because I truly take a day of rest. And so I think most people, like their weekends, they have way too many plans. They're coordinating, they're documenting the fun plans and posting a caption. It's exhausting. But if you really said, I am not going to care about the rest of the world, I'm just going to be right here, maybe with the people I'm with or by myself, you'll feel relaxed in a, such a rejuvenating way. But um, you socialize, but, but, though, on the weekends, don't you? Yeah. We always have people over for Shabbat, and I'd love to have you over soon. I always have people over for Shabbat, and then we... Um, but Saturday's kind of a chill day. Friday's very social. We have a lot of people coming over tonight, and then tomorrow's like, usually we'll take a walk in nature with our dog and naps, and it's very... Farmer's Market is very chill. What kind of dog do um, you have? What? I'm curious, always. What kind of dog do you have? Oh, uh, I have a 71-pound cloud of love that's a golden doodle who we named rosalind franklin after the scientist but we call yeah. her rosie rosalind franklin of course being involved in uh yes what was yeah. known as the watson crick discovery but she had certainly a, a preeminent role in that and that's an just, example she wasn't recognized while she was alive yeah um let's say before we say goodbye uh your father was a friend of mine and was dear to me um 
his legacy, I mean, it's considerable. He did that. He, he wanted to finish a book on Da Vinci before he died, and he did. Um, but he also, you mentioned the book on the goddess. He did a book on art and physics. I mean, he has an oeuvre, you know, uh, that word that Larry David loves to make fun of. But he really has a, a, a body of work and a considerable body of work. What do you think of most when you think of your dad's legacy? And we should mention he was an orthopedic surgeon. I mean... Yeah, he, well, he was a general surgeon. And your mother's a psychologist. These are pretty good genes we're talking about here. Yeah, I think, um, you know, I think he really showed people um, how to think big and how to be present. He was very present. When he was with you, people always said he he made them feel like they were the most important people in the room. And I think the moment he died was like when people were just like distracted all the time. And he was so present. And he had a lot of big ideas. He made a lot of connections I don't think people made before. And he was, was even present posthumously because I know after he died, there was a big screen and he came on and said, <laughs> exactly. well, you know, he was at the funeral. if you're, if you're was, seeing me now on screen, it's because I've passed. Yeah. He showed up at his own funeral. That was very exciting for us to plan um, without telling anyone that he actually showed up on video at his funeral. But he he loved deeply and he was a great father and friend. and. Um, and, you know, my mother's alive. She's a psychologist. And, you know, both of my parents, she's just about to start volunteering, doing a support group for people in her early 80s. And I think both of my parents um, really paved the path for any of these projects I told you about. It was, I felt very lucky to be their child. And even though, you know, it wasn't like all rosy, they got divorced. It wasn't like this idyllic child that I'm saying, but they both are incredible individual people and were are great parents. So I think that's ultimately the great legacy is, is your children. Well, you have a couple of terrific siblings too. I mean, yes, my brother Jordan Schlain and my sister Kimberly Brooks. So, um, yeah. The last name from Albert Brooks, the comedian who is her husband and, uh, really a delight to talk to you onward and it upward for you. Always, well, I feel it's such a pleasure to talk to you. I feel like we, We've had a one long conversation for over many, many years, and I I really appreciate your mind and your curiosity, and I like seeing this new chapter of how you're doing the show. It's great. Well, let us continue in that vein, and uh, good luck to you, and uh, thank you so much for joining us, and kind thanks to all of you who joined us live for this episode of Gray Matter with Michael Krasny. Thanks to all of you who will be listening to us in the future on Apple, Spotify, or on our website at graymatter.show. That's gray with an E. And an important reminder, if you haven't yet joined our growing community, please go to our website at graymatter.show and become a member. My thanks especially to our great Gray Matter with Michael Krasny team, Alex, Shannon, Colin, Chad, Kevin, and Jeff. And a special thanks to this episode's special guest, Tiffany Schlain. I'm Michael Krasny. Bandwidth for Gray Matter is provided by Cashfly at C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com.